Hey guys, Adam here. Just got off our Zoom call with Ryan Frederick. I think you're really going to enjoy the show. As you know, I have some amazing guests that I get the opportunity to speak to. And we're often talking about the origin story, why they got into the business that they're in and how they're scaling it. My chat with Ryan is more about entrepreneurship. Should everyone become a founder? And actually, what are the states of being a founder? What are the challenges that you're going to face? For those people thinking about entrepreneurship right now, definitely listen to this podcast. And we've also got a new book coming to the book club. If you want to learn more about that, head over to Facebook, search the Business Owners Group, join our community. And we've got 10 copies of Ryan's book we're giving away. If you're one of the 10 people that get that, let me know. Actually, don't let me know. Let Ryan know what you thought of the book because you're going to let me know as part of the book club. Enjoy this podcast, guys. Speak to you soon. Ryan Frederick is a founder and product person at heart and has had the privilege of being part of starting and growing several software and service companies. He's helped companies grow from inception to viability through to sustainability. During the evolution of these companies, Ryan has served on company boards and has been instrumental in capitalization activities. He's also helped companies to expand to international markets. Ryan combines a unique blend of business acumen and technical knowledge, having originally been a developer who migrated to the business side. He now helps companies build great software products and solve data challenges for competitive advantage as a principal at the product and data consulting firm AWH. Ryan is an active angel investor and mentors and advises entrepreneurs and startups as well as corporate innovation leaders. He launched a non-profit workforce development program to train underemployed adults on digital skills called IC Stars. And Ryan's even authored a book on increasing the odds of success in creating products, being a founder and starting companies called The Founder's Manual, a guidebook for becoming a successful entrepreneur. So now please sit back and enjoy this interview between Adam Callow and Ryan Frederick. Ryan, firstly, a huge thank you for taking your time to join us on the Startup at Diary podcast. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, mate. Thanks very much for asking. Um, running around like a headless chicken today, but overall, really good. Well, um, you know that that's you know that's what it takes when you. I now know that you're you know a, a, a multimedia mogul, recording all sorts <laughs> of podcasts and videos. Also, you know, building a startup. So um, sounds like you've got a fair a fair amount going on. Yeah, we've got we've got a. Fingers in a few pies, as we like to say over here. Uh, Ryan, for the people listening, they've obviously heard a bit about you from Harry at the top of the show. In your own words, can you just give an introduction to who you are and what you're about? Yeah, um, you know, uh, to start, you know, a a kid from a small town in upstate New York and didn't have any real entrepreneurial, um, you know, uh, heritage as part of my my family. But for some reason, you know, I felt very strongly that I, I wanted to, you know, do something as part of, you know, very small, but, uh, uh, mighty teams. And, and, you know, that meant, you know, ultimately going down the startup path and the entrepreneurial path, which I guess was, was intentional and strategic because I knew pretty early on that I was not a, a great big company person and working at a big company did not sound very appealing to me. Um, so there was something as part of, of my DNA and makeup that said, you know, let's, let's, try to build something and, and see if we can make a go of it. And so, and then, uh, got fortunate and joined a, 
startup pretty early uh, in my career. And, you know, and I'm old enough now that we didn't even call them startups back then. It was just, you know, it was kind of a, a small business with big aspirations, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm also not completely sure that that isn't, you know, the right mentality anyway. Um, because I think that there can be such a, a romance around building a startup now and, and everything that goes along with it and all the, the press and hype. And, you know, we've got now entrepreneurial celebrities and megastars, right, with Bezos and Zuckerberg and sort of down the line. And I don't know that it's a bad mindset to, you know, go into it thinking, well, you know, we just have we just have a small business with some hopes of maybe it growing and becoming bigger. And and I'm not and, and maybe that's OK. Um, and that's kind of where I started. And then, and I think something that's critical is I got access, you know, to then, you know, um, and, and awareness around the process and some people that, that could help me sort of learn and understand the process and grow and then, and then to pursue other problems and opportunities that, that, uh, that we identified. So I think awareness and access is also a critical piece of the puzzle um, because I met investors through the company that that I joined that was a startup, and and then we saw a problem to to go after in another market, and the uh, lead investor for that company said, "Yeah, I'll I'll jump in and support this one." And and so, but if you don't have that sort of you know that access, and you're not building that network of people, you know that that have the ability to help you not only launch a company but to then progress it. Um, the journey becomes, you know, that much harder when you're out, you know, trying to, you know, scramble to raise money and, and do things like that. So I've been fortunate along the way. And, and, you know, now I'm at a point where uh, I'm a partner in a uh, product consulting firm and, and, um, and data consulting firm, and we help clients build custom software products and solve data challenges. And, um, and then, you know, I, I, I record a product podcast and, you know, I decided to write a book because, you know, a, a publisher was, was silly enough to find some interest in it. And, and so we've got that out there now. And so it's been, now I've, uh, now I'm very intent on, you know, trying to um, help others be aware of what the journey is like and, and, you know, the, the, the highs and the lows and everything in between, because it's a pretty mercurial journey when you start down this, you know, this startup path. Yeah, I think j- just as a perfect segue, uh, how you just ended that, for those of the listeners that have been a long time listener of this show, they would have heard me say probably nine out of 10 times, uh, our, our podcast is about sharing the highs, the lows, and all the learnings. Uh, because I think to your point is there is a certain degree of stardom now associated to startups and entrepreneurship. Um, out of curiosity, uh, as you were talking through that, when do you think that specifically changed? And as a follow-up is because the whole trend, it got very transparent around what venture and what funding is. That used to be a very closed environment. No one really knew what angel investors were. Venture capital wasn't as spoken about. Um, in your sort of history of being around entrepreneurship and startups, like when did you actually start to see a change? Yeah, I would say probably... It hasn't been that long ago, actually, <clears throat> probably 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say that it was, it was probably the advent of, because, you know, even if you look at, at companies that got to be, re- that were really impactful and got to be really big, and, and most of them started and, and, and were based in Silicon Valley, right? If you think about 
the Netscapes and, you know, and, and, um, you know, the PayPal's and, and companies like that, um, there, there still wasn't really, you know, broad sort of ubiquitous awareness, right. About the companies and, and the process and, and, and as you said, sort of venture capital. And then I think when companies started to break through uh, that, that were more consumer oriented and had more sort of you know, broad visibility, then I think things started to change because then you had companies like uh, Facebook and Amazon, you know, et cetera. And, 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 clearly it was bringing sort of the consumer and the, the, the average person then into um, the startup sort of journey and life cycle, you know, as a benefactor and as a consumer of it. And then there started to be many more stories and, there, and then ultimately movies right around, you know, building a company and venture capital, et cetera. So I think when it when it went a little bit more consumer, when the company started becoming more consumer mainstream companies and not mostly B two B companies, I think that's when the, that's when a dramatic shift happened. Yeah, that's a really good observation, I guess. Um, one, the B two C element. Two, being more connected and people wanting to hear the journey, the narrative. How did the company become what it became today? the use of social media to tell that story probably allowed more consumers to understand actually how do you guys get funded and, and that side of the world. Yeah. Uh, and actually I think there could be even more out there about it. I think there could be more, I mean, part of what you're doing, but I think there could be more sort of documentaries about, you know, the, the process and, and maybe it being less sensationalized than it is now through some of the, the media out there and some of the movies and those kinds of things. Um, because it's you know it, I, the you know a movie you know like the the Steve Jobs movie or the you know the movie about Zuckerberg and Facebook you know those also have to be you know written and and mm-hmm. and produced in a way that's entertaining and so then how much of the how much of the real substance gets lost right through the the entertainment component so I don't know I'm uh, I'm now starting to believe that if we actually gave people much more exposure to the real inner workings of being a founder and trying to build a startup and, and a product that it, it probably wouldn't be quite as alluring as it is right now. Uh, again, per- perfect sort of jumping off point for me. So when I, when I learned about you and uh, knew we were going to have you as a guest onto the show, um, I get a sense that you've got a, an insight into both the product world, but the people world of, of running a, running a business. I feel like there's a human element that's missing from everything, every piece of content that's out there right now, which forgets about the mindset that a founder has to enter this process into. What advice do you have for someone in that situation? Yeah, um, great topic because this is what I like to, to talk about the most um, is, is the sort of human aspect of being a founder and starting a company. And I, I think, you know, there's still too many people that I see that, that, that are doing it for the wrong reasons. And they're doing it because... They want to be known as a founder. They want to be known as an entrepreneur. And those are just labels, right? And, mm-hmm. and anybody, and they're also um, labels that you can give to yourself, right? You can just call yourself a founder. You can call yourself an entrepreneur. And so they don't mean that much anymore. They're pretty hollow. Um, you know, being, I think being a founder and being an entrepreneur, part of that means that you you migrate from being this person who can self-title and self-label themselves to actually being a good operator mm-hmm. and understanding, you know, what are the components and what are the levers of a business 
that you have to get right, well, more right than wrong, um, you know, to have it progress and for it to, you know, to have some modicum of success. Um, you know, I think that most people go into the process very um, uh, with a lack of, of self-awareness. They, they don't know, and I think it's really challenging if you think you're gonna be a successful founder if you don't understand what makes you tick. If you don't understand, you know, how you make decisions, if you don't understand how to control your emotions, if you don't understand how you engage with people and support people and lead people, and if you don't have the ability to sort of keep your ego in check, right, as part of the process and bring more empathy and humility to the process than ego and confidence, then you're you're probably going to find it to be a pretty tough road, um, because you have to have some level of ego and confidence, of course, to, to do it and to think that you can take on, you know, trying to, to build a company. Um, but if that's, if you stay in that very ego driven, egocentric place, it's probably not going to work. And, and you're probably going to be, be someone that others don't want to take this journey with and no one accomplishes anything of significance, you know, on their own. So, I think it's also one other thing I'll squeeze into um, th this answer to the question is, it's also a very lonely journey. And most people don't know that going into it. Um, because if, if we, we think that because we're founders and entrepreneurs and we wanna solve problems through building companies and products that, that everybody cares about what we're doing. And the reality is no one cares about what we're doing. They don't care until you give them a reason to care and that, that journey to you know giving them a reason to care is is fraught with lots of danger and angst and you know and so that especially in the early days it can be incredibly lonely and most people aren't prepared for that level of loneliness and and the the level of of uh, uh intensity around it yeah i started our, our business as a solo founder and it's probably the key the key thing in our origin story that I would change, to be honest with you, uh, those first two, three, four years. And I guess even now, just having someone as a sounding board to sense check the decisions within the business. Um, admittedly, I've, I've, got a, I've got a board, we raise some capital, that's in theory what they're there for, but to have someone shoulder to shoulder with, because it's a really, really lonely game, uh, especially when you hire people and those people think that you know everything they think that you know what you're doing and then you get, right. home, you get home at night and you're like i'm making this up week by week right now because i'm sort of like jumping off the cliff and building the airplane on the way down to use that analogy um extremely lonely that resonates with me a lot and, and to your point before that which was how do you it's really tough because as someone who starts a company has to have so much self-belief that they can build something and change the world around what they need to they see something in the world that's broken and they believe that they are the one to fix it. And then balancing that without being ego driven, like how does someone being self-aware is obviously important, but how does someone start to at least think about that and start to understand where are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? How do I fill my weaknesses? Because I'll be honest, it probably took me, we're seven years into this. I hired my first executive coach last year because I knew that I needed to become a better CEO, but I just didn't understand how. I didn't have the tool set, didn't know what I needed to do. Uh, and he's helped me develop my self-awareness. For someone listening to this now, have you got any tips for them to start to think about themselves in this way before they potentially start a company? Yeah, I think the, the, your ability to get outside of yourself, it, it matters greatly. So what does that mean? 
So if you have the ability and, and yes, you have to have confidence and self-belief and you have to have an ego to start a company and, and, and to go down this path. But the, the sooner that you can make it about the problem and about customers and about the team, right? And, and get, get it out of you and get it, get it and have it not be about you and get it outside of yourself, then I think you're setting yourself up to have the right perspective, the right mindset, and the ability to then be someone that customers want to work with, investors want to invest in, that a team wants to, to follow, right? And, 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 and that's a real challenge because we're not really wired and there isn't a lot of training and there isn't a lot of coaching around how do you, uh, how do you put the focus on something else yet execute, you know, sort of ruthlessly, you know, in defense of these other people versus in defense of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to really, um, you know, look at things through a lens of humility and, and to value the fact that, whatever you brought to the situation, whatever you know, whatever your skills are, pales in comparison to what you need to know and ultimately what you need to evolve, where you need to evolve to. And you, you have to, through the process, value learning over knowing. And I think that's the, one of the big thing differences between being an entrepreneur and being, and, and working at a big company, for example, is at big companies, the whole premise and the whole hierarchy, you know, behind resumes and reviews and compensation and titles is what do you know? And then we're put, we're going to put a value on what you know, yep. right? And we're going to give you a compensation package and a title based upon what you've done in your career and what you've done educationally. And then we're going to wrap that up and, and that's where you are professionally as an entrepreneur. Um, none of that really matters because you, and, unless you've, unless you've built a product and started a company before and, and you're back again to do something in the same space, just with a slightly different flavor, that means you're headed down a path that you've, you've probably never tried to solve this problem before with a product and a company. You've probably never worked with these customers before and you have to have the mindset of whatever you brought into it, is, is, is going to be helpful, but you have to value what you're going to learn through the process about the problem and from customers more than anything that you brought into the process. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, it actually reminded me of a, uh, a quote that I probably just heard it probably in the last 48 hours, which was, uh, you'll never learn what you think you know. So go, going in with the attitude of thinking you know it all, then you're a closed book. You're not receptive to the rest of it. As, well, and as a founder, that's a, that, that's, I mean, I don't want to be too fatalistic, but that's a death sentence, yeah. right? Because if you go into trying to solve a problem, building a product and building a company, and you think that you know, you know it all and you have all the answers, it, you're, you're screwed, right? Mm -hmm. Because now you're going to build a solution on top of a very superficial understanding of the problem. You're probably not going to build it in a way that customers will value and pay for. And so if you go into this process as a founder, very egotistically driven and, and valuing what you brought to the table versus what you could learn, then um, it's probably not going to work. Uh, agree. And, and I guess to pull it back to where we started the conversation, it feels like this 
putting entrepreneurship on a pedestal and the sensationalism that goes on around people like Steve Jobs. When they look at Steve Jobs, they thought he knew what he wanted and he made it happen. He bent the world around him. And that probably gives founders the impression that you go into a business with a, I, here's the product that I want to build. And what I took away from what you said is ignore the product you want to build. Think about the person you're trying to solve a problem for, and then be, they know, they know what you don't and then be receptive to listen to them and then build your product around them compared to taking the air, air quotes, Steve jobs approach. Yeah. I was giving a, a, a work, a, a workshop at a conference and, and one of my guiding principles is, is you get and stay close to customers mm -hmm. because especially in the early days, if you don't, you have, you have virtually no chance of building a product that they will value and pay for to solve a problem. If you don't, if you don't, and, and none of this, none of these are epiphanies, right? I mean, Eric Reese in Lean Startup, right, talks about the fact that you've got to iterate, you know, quickly and closely with customers. We just don't do it. Right. And we don't do it because dealing with humans is messy and it's complicated and it's easier to just say, well, we know what to build and then start building it and then and then deal with the consequences of being wrong. Um, but th there is um, you, 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 when someone comes to me now and someone says, you know, I'm, I'm working on a product, I've got an idea, you know, et cetera. I'm like, all right, cool. What problem are you solving and who are you solving the problem for? And if they can't answer that then I, I, they're already off to a bad start because they're, again, very, they're egotistically driven versus being problem customer-centric driven. And if, if you're not problem customer-centric driven in this environment, I don't think you have much of a chance of, of making it work and having it be successful. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I guess I want to use the opportunity selfishly to get your, your thoughts on this. So, one of the things that I'm probably proudest of within the company that we run is we are, we're extremely close to the customer. Um, and we remind ourselves every single day that we, we build this for our customer. Uh, we have become so close to our customer that we have become friends with our first three to 500 customers. That's awesome. Congrats. It's amazing. But let me just ask you this. When you're trying to take it from that early adopter they, they build it with you. They tell you where it's falling over and you build it to, you, to the point that you have a product that you believe is fit for market. We've got, we've got product market fit to use the, uh, the terminology that's out there. Um, how do you train your team? So this is a people conversation for me to understand that as you try and move your product into more of a mass market, um, larger scale that, we, we hold the relationship with our core users, the, the people that were there to help us build the product, but we cannot build a service specifically around them. How do you consider balance in those two things? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge that, that many startups run into. Um, it, you, can, you can almost become a, a service firm, a professional services firm in the early days versus a product company because exactly right yeah you know because in some cases you 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 truly are a services firm at the beginning and not a product company because while you're building the product sometimes customers will pay you for some degree of of consulting or some some service support while to help them to help them mitigate the problem 
right, while the product's getting built that ultimately should mitigate the problem in a bigger way and, and, and more sustainably. Um, and I, I think it's, it's, you have to, you have to sort of go back with the team and, you know, and, and remind the team and the customers to a degree to say, we're, we're not, there was no intention of building this product and building this company to serve 200 customers. Mm-hmm. Our intention, our goal is to help as many people solve this problem as we can. And that means that, that we've ultimately got to serve a hundred thousand customers, right? A, a million customers, whatever, whatever, you know, the bigger number, you know, is that you want to represent. And I think that has to be a, 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 a drumbeat throughout the process that has to happen. Um, and then, because that then informs and it almost becomes part of this, of the culture, because then that then forces decisions around, okay, the, the, our seventh customer is now asking for this functionality in the product that frankly will only serve and benefit them. And we have no evidence that it'll, it'll benefit and serve any other customer that we have now or that we're likely to have in the near future. And, and then, and then you have to be willing to go and, and have a very transparent, frank conversation with that customer to say, this is, this is so far outside of our roadmap and, and we don't think, and we've already validated because we've talked to other customers that they're not going to get value out of this, et cetera. So if we add this to the product, you know, this would, this would be, you know, just for you guys. And are you willing to, are you willing to pay for that? Right. And then, and, and, and then I would still be a little bit hesitant about doing it because now you've, now you've got a code branch that you probably have to manage and support, you know, separately from the rest of the product, you know, uh, et cetera. But the thing that I found that the, the best to do there is you just have to have this constant drumbeat of, of every customer is important. Yes, but no customer is so important and no customer can drive the product roadmap um, without our, you know, long-term vision being part of it because we didn't, we didn't do this to serve one customer. We did this to have a long-term viable company that could support a hundred thousand customers. Yeah. I absolutely love that. That was selfishly uh, th- this whole call for me, that, that's a nugget for me. Cause that's something I'm personally struggling with that the way that you put that together. And I guess what I took away from it was when we bespoke it or build a feature set for a very small percentage of our customer base, we're actually doing a disservice, uh, to the rest of the people that we're trying to serve. Um, we're taking our attention, we're taking our time, we're taking our focus. We're trying to impact a hundred thousand tradespeople by building this over here. We're actually, uh, hindering the level of impact we can make as a business and the, the, the drumbeat analogy makes sense. I think one of my, I think one of my flaws as a, uh, as a CEO is I expect once I've said it once it's heard and understood, but the right. way that you said the word drumbeat and you said it twice as you were speaking, I get the impression that there is, there is a constant requirement to remind people. Uh, how do you, how do you, I guess I'd, I'd love to zoom into that actually, because I think it's an insight for me is, how, how do you think, how do you feel about uh, getting people on the train, but keeping them on the train? Like how, have you seen any, uh, any people that you admire, how they do that? Any tactics to keep, keep the company focused on the bigger vision compared to the 30, 60, 90 day window that they're operating in? 
Yeah, I think that's one of the real challenges of being, you know, the, 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 a, a founder, a co-founder, and then, you know, part of the leadership team, you know, CEO or, or otherwise is the, especially as you begin to, you know, recruit and build out a team, um, the, the, the CEO has to remain sort of at that visionary, you know, point um, in the organization, right? And not get it in, and it's hard because, especially if you're, you're a co-founder and, and you, you, you've done everything right as part of the company, you know, to, to the point where you've now got a team, you know, that you can delegate things to and then, and then start carrying some of the water. Um, the CEO then has to, you know, be that visionary that, that makes sure that everybody knows where the company is headed, why decisions are getting made that are that are getting made and what's the reasoning behind those and what everyone's role is uh and it, it's it's hard because you know founders tend to um want to get the want to get their hands dirty and mm -hmm. and and eventually i think you have to sort of rise above that <clears throat> because presumably you've also hired people as part of the team that are more capable in any individual craft inside of the business than you are which means they're they're the experts in those areas and can do a better job than you can do in those areas. But what no one can re really replace all this this happens when you see you know boards get into fights and investors get into fights with founders and operators is no one should be able to um, execute the vision and communicate the vision better than a founder and CEO. And I think that. Um, and it has to be, and, and I'll go back to the drumbeat thing, it has to be constant, right? It is not something that um, you, you, can, you can sort of do once or do once a year at an annual meeting, you know, et cetera. And so one of the best things that I've seen now is companies are holding weekly town halls. And, and in the town hall, the CEO is reinforcing the vision. And sometimes from week to week, it, you know, the, the progression toward a, a grander vision is very incremental, right? Week to week. <clears throat> but the value of that is that it says to the team th that um, we, we, we have a plan, we're executing the plan, and we're headed toward, you know, the, this vision, this marker in, in the future. And, and as things come up that could be distractions to the plan, and and would take and and would be a redirect away from the, the you know the marker uh, in the future, the team starts to see. Oh, I mean, we're we're serious about uh, about realizing this vision, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it does take that level of 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 sort of reiteration, right? To say, okay, because we, we, you you want it to get to a point, and maybe this is the most important thing after you know the couple of minutes of rambling I've just done around it is the team has to be able to operate without having to think about the vision, right? They have to know this is where we're headed and then they can make micro decisions, right? Inside of their area in the company that align with that vision because the vision is ever present for them. Yeah, it gives a sense of clarity, which will speed up, I guess, decision-making, even in the micro, should we, shouldn't we build this feature or how do I interact with this customer? If you, they can then say, how does this align with our North Star as a business? Yes or no. And then on their own compared to, which is, um, which has been a documented frustration of mine on the podcast. So for the members of my team that listen to the show, you know it too. The knocking on the door and saying, I've got this idea. What do you think? 
if the drum beat was consistent, they could in theory answer their own questions a lot more because they, they can say, does this hit our vision and goals? And you're nodding, which is good because I feel like we're, we're on the same page. And I'm, I love it when I jump on a uh, podcast and it's a learning experience for me, Ryan, which is cool. Um, talking about learning, you wrote a book. What drove you to write a book, by the way? Because for someone that doesn't write, I love to consume content, audiobooks. I'm starting to read more now. Um, what is a driving factor for someone to want to put their thoughts down into a book and get it into the world? What was it for you? Yeah, I never intended to write a book, never thought I would write a book. I'm actually not a great writer. So it's a good thing that, that you know, the, the publisher has good editors um, because I'm still not a great writer, even after having written a book. Um, it, was, it was one of those things where um, I, I started to, about 10 years ago, I started to get, learn about flow. And I started to to get interested in in flow and and flow to summarize it for for everybody's listening is flow is when someone it refers to an athlete as being in the in the zone mm-hmm. that's flow and then and so I started to think about so I I became interested in it and then I started to think about flow is to relate related to all the things that you know that that I've done you know build products start companies you know et cetera. And then I started to just jot down some thoughts around, well, if there were principles to being a founder, building a product and starting a company, what would those be? And then it it turned out that those were, you know, chapter titles, um, you know, and, and then, so I showed that list to a friend of mine who had written a book and, and he said, you should write a book around this. And, and my, my publisher would, would do the book. uh, And I said, "Mm, never thought about it that way. And, and so he made the introduction and then, um, and then they said yes. And so we did it. So it was, it was really the genesis of taking sort of a concept of, of principle based high performance in another area and applying it to being a founder, building a product and, and, and a startup. And, and that was, that was really the genesis. And who did you write the book for? Cause I understand that you, when you're compiling these thoughts together and I want to, I guess I want to, uh, I've got a problem with being an interviewer because I tend to load multiple questions up into one question and I just sense myself doing it, but I'm still going to do it. Um, <laughs> who is the book for? And I guess um, at the same time, can you share what you do with Startup Grind? Because I just get in it, from doing a bit of background research, I get a, um, an indication that you have access to a lot of founders and see a lot of the same, potentially the same problems cropping up. So how did you use Startup Grind or your experience to write this book and who did you write it for? Yeah, I, I, I think it's written primarily for someone th- that um, think it has the, um, has the entrepreneurial itch and they're not sure whether they should scratch it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really who it's primarily intended for. Um, cause one of the things that I write about in the book is that I, I think it's actually a, a, a and this is, you know, um, maybe, you know, somewhat, you know, depressing. Uh, but I think that, uh, most people should not be founders and most people should not be entrepreneurs. Not depressing, realistic, 100% realistic. Okay, good. Um, I'm glad you agree with that because I I get pushback on that sometimes, you know, that, that I don't encourage everyone, you know, to be, you know, a founder and an entrepreneur. And, and I think that if you're, if you're not wired to, to, to be able to deal with it and, and to sort of thrive in the environment, then it, it, and I've seen this too many times, it will, it will chew you up and spit you out. Um, and it's not, it's not, it's not only is it not for everyone, it's not for most people. 
It's not for um, most people. And given the fact that there's so much sensationalism around entrepreneurship right now, your expectations when entering are so far from, in my opinion, realistic. It creates a massive chasm that you've got to try and cross. And that's when, that's when you can get really down and start beating yourself up. Yep. And, and so, you know, mental wellness and, and I mean, physical wellness too is part of entrepreneurship is a real problem now. Um, depression's a real problem, you know, as part of it. Um, and in part, because I think there's lots of people who are trying to be founders and trying to be entrepreneurs who just, who just shouldn't be. Um, and, and, or at least not at this point in their life, they're just not mm -hmm. ready. They're just not there. Um, and so that's who I, that's who I intended to really write it for, you know, um, you know, mostly because I, I would see lots of people, um, and, you know, through startup grind and, and other, you know, opportunities to, to meet founders and, and, um, talk to people, I would see a lot of people, um, just sort of adopting this hustle mantra narrative too. Right. And, and, you know, and I would, I would meet them. And then over the course of a couple of months, I would see them, you know, at, at coffee shops, you know, talking repeatedly talking to various people, et cetera. And then, you know, I'd get a message from them, you know, a couple of weeks later and, and, and they're like, Hey, you know, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And then I talked to them and, and they're like, ah, you know, the startup's not going very well, et cetera. And I said, well, I noticed that, you know, you, I, I've seen you, you know, around a lot, you know, having coffee with a lot of people, et cetera doesn't seem like you're actually working that intentionally and disciplined that on the problem and on the product and on the company. And they're, and, and they're like, well, you know, I'm just trying to build my network and I'm just trying to meet a lot of people and I'm just trying to sort of spread the gospel about what we're working on, et cetera. And then I sort of have to break the bad news that they're going about it completely the wrong way. And I think early in, in a company and early in a product's life, um, the only people that, that you, need to impress and that you should be talking to are customers and potentially investors if you're seeking investment you know that early um and then potential team members right i mean it, nobody else matters right? but the reason that they're doing that is they don't understand and they don't have the discipline to the process that they need to so they think what they think being an entrepreneur is is going around and, and getting people jazzed about their idea and what they're working on. And, and, and then they waste, you know, three months or six months or whatever it is. And before they realize, Oh, I actually haven't worked on the company, you know, much at all. Um, I've just been sort of, you know, spouting off, you know, about it. So, you know, I think there's, there's just a, a lack of discipline inside of, of the entrepreneurial um, process, you know, by lots of, of, first time uh, founders that, as you alluded to earlier, that they just don't understand the realities of it. And the, the chasm between where they are and what they think it is and what it really is, is, is massive in most cases. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that I guess even personally is I, I start, I come from a, my, my parents started a business. I've had, I was doing car boots and entrepreneurship and my, it was never called entrepreneurship. It was, it was just uh, for my dad, it was running a business or wheeling and dealing as he used to say, uh, he'd always be able to make a few quid. Um, I was, awesome. Yeah, I was I was brought up in that, uh, and uh, sort of as I've as I've said before, like hard work and love was just the thing that I was surrounded by. I'm lucky as a kid to go through that. But as I started my business, I even started out with the the right intentions of 
just do the work because I, I like the process of doing the work. And I had to catch myself probably about three years ago, four years ago, when we started to do venture raises, had cash. And when, when that money hit the bank, and we raised our first sort of seed. Um, we had like a quarter of a million pounds land in our bank. I actually had to take a couple of days back to just make sure that I didn't change who I was at that point, because I think that's when the sensational investment can kick in. And I think I, I personally know a lot of friends in, the, in, in my networks that have sort of changed their attitude about what they think about entrepreneurship and business because all of a sudden they've been funded. Uh, and I guess I just wanted to get uh, your views on that topic is um, for me, how I see it now is funding the business actually doesn't change anything. It, it accelerates the path that you're on. And if you're on a path to failure, it's going to accelerate it regardless. The money doesn't solve it. It just makes it quicker. Uh, what, what's your views on um, how entrepreneurs deal with fundraising? And have you got any, um, I guess, experience that you can share to help people avoid making mistakes when it comes to fundraising? So I think it is very hot right now, depending on the products that you're building. Yeah. Fundraising um, only means one thing. And that means that you were able to convince one or more investors that if, if capital was applied to what you're working on, that there would be a, a return based upon being able to scale the current operation. Um, that, that, and, and that's all that it means. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. It doesn't mean that the funding and the investors are, um, there's no validation in it apart from the fact that you can sell the idea. Right, exactly. And, yeah. and so I, I think people take, put, they put way more credence and they put way more of an endorsement into it than what is really there. And they have to separate themselves from the fact that, that yes, someone wrote a check or some group of people wrote a check and, and they now have funds versus those people have now... Um, sort of um, rubber stamped the company as going to be successful. Mm -hmm. That's not the case, right? The, the, the investors made a very, they made a financial transaction decision of we could, we, could, we could put this capital to work here or we could wait to put it somewhere else or we could put it into the 20 other companies that we're looking at right now. And they made a financial assessment that said, mm, this seems like it's the best place for this capital to go to, go to work. But investors are making a financial transaction decision. They are not making a company operation likelihood of success decision, really. Yep. Um, and I think that's where founders get, get tripped up. And then, and then they put way too much value in the fact that they've, they've raised money. And then, yeah, and then their mindset changes, their perspective changes, um, the mode of operation changes, the, the vibe around the company even changes, right? It's almost like you can, you can, it's almost like you can physically see their foot coming off of the accelerator, right? That it's now that we've got some cash in the bank, we don't have to grind as hard as we've been grinding, right? And that's true to a degree uh, if you've been grinding to be able to, you know, pay your bills and to eat and for the team to do so as well. And, and the investment gives you, you know, a little bit of a runway there for that night, not to be quite so intense. Um, but if you take your foot off the accelerator and then you realize, Oh, we, 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 we shouldn't have done that. And then you try to put your foot back on the accelerator. It's not, it doesn't take, it takes a tremendous, and there's, there's a, like, there's a physics equation in here somewhere. It takes, 
imminently more force and effort to reapply to to reapply it than if you had just kept grinding at the same level that you were grinding pre-funding agree Uh, and i think from a if you're a very small team you can probably um rally the troops to try and get the energy back but if even we're a really small company there's only 12 of us here um but we didn't realize that culture was a thing, whether you looked at it or not, because the company will develop, it, develop its own culture. Yeah. Um, so that's something that was my learnings last year. And it's really hard to get to realign culture after you've realized that it slipped. And I can imagine it being 10 times harder to, re- to sort of realign speed. If you've had a whole team grinding for two years to get to MVP, raise some capital, and then you foot off the gas and go, actually, oh shit, we, we, we're struggling now to get the whole team to operate 120% again, lifestyles change. It's, I can completely agree with that. It's like the culture yeah. change that we went through. And there's, there, there actually have been some studies out there uh, about this, that if you look at, at vent, when venture capital comes into a company and then a company's progression pre-investment and then post-investment, there's actually just as many companies that post-investment um, decline and struggle versus those that accelerate and and evolve and it is and it's because the 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 capital infusion into the company changes the the dynamic of of how the company operates yeah completely it changes dna i think one of the things that we're really proud of is um we we took a second to reevaluate where we were, uh, and I, I took I took two days off in the middle of the week to sort of reevaluate, and we came back in and we kept the foot on the gas. Uh, and I think if we didn't do that, we'd be in a very different position to where we are today. Um, Ryan, like I've already run over time because I'm enjoying talking to you so much about uh, I guess specifically the human part of being a founder because I don't often get the opportunity to speak to people about this. Um, if people right now want to learn more about yourself. Um, the work that you do, where's the best place for people to pick up this conversation with you? Yeah, probably I'll give you, I'll, I'll give everyone two, um, two URLs to go to. One is for the book. It's the founders And then the other one is uh, my personal site, which then has other links off to off of it and, and to the book, ryanfrederick.biz. Uh, and so if you, and then you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter and, you know, the, the social platforms as well. So if, uh, yeah, if somebody wants to hit me up and continue the conversation or, you know, to dig into a, a topic, um, a little bit more narrowly than we had the opportunity to, as part of this conversation, I'm happy to found founders are my people. Uh, I love founders being a founder is the hardest professional thing that anybody can do. And, um, it's, um, it, it, you know, I just, I, I feel thankful that, uh, I sort of found my, I, f- I found my tribe as it were, um, you know, sort of accidentally, but, uh, yeah, founders and entrepreneurs are, are people that, that, um, I, I just have always related to better than, you know, others. Um, and if anybody wants to talk about any part of, of this nonsense um, and the irrational aspects of all of this, um, then I'm happy to. Yeah, I love that. And I think anyone that's listening to this, they should definitely take up on that because I think for me, Ryan, I really appreciate the way that you approach the nature of being a founder uh, into, in a logical manner uh, with a rational uh, lens is probably the best way I put it. Um, and also guys, uh, one thing I am going to do is uh, for those of you that are in our 
closed Facebook group for the podcast. Uh, all you need to do is head over to Facebook, search business owners group. We're starting a book club. Um, that went, that was actually on our live stream. We just did into the group. So I'm going to grab some copies of Ryan's book. Uh, I'm going to distribute that into some of the members. Uh, and we'd love to hear what you guys think. Once you've read that book, drop Ryan a line uh, and let me know what you think. Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. Um, so selfishly, I get the opportunity to speak to you for an hour on the mics, but I'm going to keep your email and hopefully we can stay in touch. And if I ever want to bounce some ideas off you, uh, I will, I will definitely be pinging that over. Please do. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it very much. Cheers, Ryan. Cheers.